Good afternoon. Please open your Bibles for the last time to the book of Judges, chapter, well, hopefully not for the last time, but the last time together in this study. Hopefully I haven't ruined the book entirely for you that it's the last time you open up to the book of Judges. Heard a story of, I believe it was little Palin, who referred to the book of Judges as that terrible book. Is that the way she said it? That terrible book. It has been, it has been terrible in a sense, hasn't it, um, for us to survey this book, and yet, uh, even, even to the point that one commentator from chapter 19 said, uh, F.B. Meyer said, we, we shouldn't really even read this chapter. It got that bad. Uh, and yet, we know that all of God's words have, given, have been given to us for the strengthening of our faith and are a gift to us, uh, as they are all the words of Christ. So this last chapter... Judges chapter 21, we find the kingdom without a king. The kingdom without a king. If you remember in the previous two chapters, this is a continual dialogue or a continual narrative of uh, the, the story that began in that terrible of chapters, chapter number 19, with this concubine who is with a Levite. And she, if you remember how this entire story started before all of the atrocities of Benjaminites and the civil war that happened in the, la- in the previous chapter. What began all of this series of events was a concubine abandoning her marriage, leaving her husband. And her husband, the Levite, goes and finds her at her father's home, stays there for several nights. And if you remember, he, he convinces her to come back home with him. And so she does. And on their way back home... It says that that Levite had a servant. And the servant says, let's stop in this town, but it was a Canaanite town. And we get kind of a foreshadow of something that's going to happen that's horrific. Because the Levite says, no, we're not going to stop in that Canaanite town. Because horrible things happen in those kind of towns. You don't want to be found when it's dark in those kind of towns. So let's go to a city that is in Israel where our brothers live, the Benjaminites live there, a city called Gibeah. Let's stay there for the night. It's just a little while further. We'll stay there for the night. And of course, the what I've called the most gruesome chapter in probably the entire Bible happens in chapter number 19. And that happens not in a city of Canaan, but in a city of Benjamin, an Israelite city. And it wasn't men of Sodom doing these horrific acts, but it was men of the tribe of Benjamin, God's people that did that committed these atrocities. And this Levite has his concubine and he divides her body up and sends her body to all of the 12 tribes in Israel with a message, with a note. And it says that they are to take heed to what has happened to counsel among each other and to stand and to speak. And that's what happens in the last chapter. They, they come together. This Levite is able to assemble the tribes of Israel in a way that none of the judges before him could ever do that. He was able to assemble all of Israel together against a common enemy. No judge was capable of uniting Israel in this way. And yet he did with this gruesome, although very effective message with his concubine's body. 
And so they do. They unite together. Israel unites together, finally, against a common enemy, these vile men from Gibeah, these Benjaminite men. And so in the previous chapter, civil war breaks out. They go and they go to Benjamin and they say, we don't want to fight you. All we need to do is purge the evil from our midst. So hand over these men of Gibeah, these evil men that did this atrocity, and we will deal with them and purge the evil from Israel. But Benjamin would rather defend rapists and murderers, vile men. They would rather defend them and wage war against the entire nation, all of their brothers combined, than to give over these men that are in their midst. And so civil war breaks out. And in chapter 20, we see that Benjamin is almost completely eradicated. There's almost no one left. All of Israel destroys every woman, every child, every animal, every city of Benjamin. Except there are 600 men in Benjamin that flee and hide, and they are the only ones left. Of the entire name of this tribe, the only ones left to further the name of Benjamin are these 600 men that are left. And they're left with no families and no wives. And so this is the predicament that Israel finds herself in in this final chapter, chapter number 21. We're going to see the mourning of the crisis in these first two verses. We'll see the response to the crisis that Israel gives. Their assembly is still met. The elders of Israel are going to give a response to the crisis. And then they're going to give the first and the second solutions to the crisis. And then finally in the last verse we'll find the epilogue to sum up this story. But I think also we will agree that the epilogue, this last verse, really is a summary of the entire book of Judges altogether. So let's begin in verse number one. The Bible says, Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. This is the, the mourning of the crisis. You see, we're given a, a glimpse of something that happened in the previous chapter, although it wasn't mentioned in the previous chapter. When the nation assembled together, all the tribes came together. It didn't mention this in chapter 20, but it tells us here now that when they met together, they made an oath. Before they went to fight against Benjamin, they agreed together. None of us will ever provide a daughter to a son of Benjamin as a wife. And they made an oath together before the Lord, a pact, brothers to brothers, tribes to tribes, that none of them would ever provide a wife for any man of Benjamin. This is an oath or a pledge that they make. If you remember, there's what I think I've been referring to as the divine mandate. It's a key theme throughout this time in Israel's history where God gives the divine mandate that when you go into Canaan to conquer it, devote them to destruction. Devote them to destruction. Save no man, woman, child, no animal, even burn their cities. Devote everything to complete destruction. 
This is part of the divine mandate. Another part that you see often repeated that goes along with this divine mandate is that God tells them repeatedly, when you go there, do not, do not give your sons to their daughters and do not give your daughters to their sons because they will intermarry and their daughters will turn your heart's sons to pagan gods and their sons will turn your, your daughter's hearts to pagan gods. So don't intermarry with them. And so what we find in Israel is a perversion of this divine mandate. They were commanded to devote to destruction the Canaanites. And so they devote to destruction the Benjaminites, their brothers. Now, I, I think all of us would agree maybe Benjamin deserved it. And yet, God's command to them, their marching orders, was devote to destruction the people of Canaan, these pagans in the land. Rid the land of them, this promised land. They're obeying the mandate, but they're not doing it to the Canaanites. They're doing it to their own brother. And the other part of the, the mandate, they have no issue in this entire book. There's no problem with intermarrying with Canaanites. Samson certainly has no problem with it. Woman after woman that is a pagan, that is a Philistine, that is a Canaanite. All throughout this book, they are not obeying this command. And yet, at the end, when they're going to obey the, can the command in a weird, in a perverted way, they obey it or disobey it against their own brother. They make this oath when they should have made a pact at the very beginning. None of us will give our sons and daughters to these pagans to marry them. Now at the very end, they make this pious pact that they're not going to give their children to wed with another one of their brothers. And so they're doing the exact opposite of the, the divine mandate that God had given them. And they're reconsidering the wisdom of this pact. That is why they're mourning here. They're weeping bitterly because now they're victors of the civil war. But they have 600 men left in Benjamin who have no way. All of their children, all of their families, all of their wives have been killed. And now they have no way of propagating the future of Benjamin. Benjamin will die with these men unless something happens. Do you recall Jacob's greatest fear? Way back in Genesis, when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, and then the brothers come asking for wheat from Joseph, and Joseph tells them, "Bring, don't you have a younger brother? Bring your young, younger brother. And they go back to the father, Jacob, and they tell Jacob, we need to bring Benjamin back. Jacob says, he will not go with you, for he is the only one left. Jacob's greatest fear was the destruction of Benjamin. And now, long after Jacob's death, his greatest fear comes true. The other brothers have completely destroyed Benjamin. Let's look to the response to the crisis in verses 3 and 4. The response to this crisis that Benjamin, one of their brothers, is almost completely eradicated. This is their response to this crisis. Verse number three, and they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. And the next day the people rose early and built an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. 
So they're found here weeping before the Lord, but don't be confused by this weeping. They're not weeping in repentance of the sin that has been committed in their land. They're weeping, they're crying, not over the sins of Israel, but they're crying over the loss of their brother. They're weeping not over the sin, but the horrific effects that have come from their sin. And this is a lesson for us. That when we sorrow, sorrow over our sins, may we remember to be careful to discern our heart that is so deceitful that we can deceive ourselves into believing that we are sorrowing and grieving over our sins when in reality we are simply grieving over the effects that our sins have caused. There's a great difference in grieving over our sins and the displeasure that it has brought against our mighty God and grieving over all of the horrific things that are happening because of our sins. You see how we can confuse this type of feigned repentance this weeping, this sorrow for sins. Certainly there is sorrow for sins in all of our repentance, and yet this is not a sorrow that brings godly repentance. We remember in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is teaching the Corinthians, a group of Christians who certainly needed to know what sorrow for sin looked like. And he tells them in chapter number 7 of 2 Corinthians, for godly grief, produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. The grief, the sorrow over the effects of their sin that Israel is grieving here, where they're weeping bitterly, this is the worldly grief that is producing death. In verse number three, we even hear that it, it almost sounds like they have a, a pious prayer. Almost sounds like they're having a spiritual prayer. Look at verse number three. They invoke the name of the Lord. O Lord, the God of Israel. Why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. This covenant name of the Lord they use, and yet I think it's obvious by the, even the way that this is worded that they are not so much genuinely trying to inquire of the Lord as to what should happen. It's not a question so much as it is an accusation. Do you hear the accusative tone here? They're accusing the Lord. How could the Lord allow this to happen? That a tribe, a brother in Benjamin, as a brother in Israel, Benjamin is nearly completely wiped off the face of the earth. One test that we can give ourselves when we are trying to discern our hearts that so easily deceive ourselves is that if there is any ounce of an accusative tone where we would point our fingers up to God Almighty and to say, how dare you allow this to happen? How could you allow this to happen. But as the saying goes, Israel should remember that any time that we point a finger, there are always three fingers pointed back at us. The Lord understands that this is not a genuine inquiry 
for direction, but simply an accusation. And that is why he is completely silent. Does not answer them. They are going through the rituals in verse 4. They build an offer. They offer burnt offerings. They offer peace offerings. They, it even says that they arose up early in the morning trying to maybe show their sincerity, that they, they need something from God, and yet the Lord is deafening, deafeningly silent. His silence is deafening. There we go. He is completely silent. Whereas in the previous chapter, when they inquire of the Lord, asking him what they should do with a civil war, how should they attack Benjamin, what should they do next, he gives them direction. In this chapter, this entire chapter, the Lord is completely silent. In, this last in the previous chapter, he chastised them by speaking. And in this cha chapter, he chastises them by remaining silent. So that brings us to their first solution to the crisis. They're going to come up with a solution. The Lord is not going to give them his solution because their repentance is not genuine. And so in verse number five, it continues. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at, to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Remon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive from the women of Jabesh Gilead. But they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. So this is another instance that we get a, a, a window back into the previous chapter. Another uh, part of the story that we were not told in chapter 20. Apparently, not every tribe was, or not every city was represented in the tribes. They're trying to find a loophole to their oath. We've made a promise that we're not going, none of us are going to be able to give any of our daughters to be wives to Benjamin. But then Benjamin will be eradicated. They will die off with these last 600 men. So what are we going to do? Well, if there was anybody that wasn't here to make that oath, then they will have daughters. Because if they didn't make the oath, then they wouldn't be obligated to keep the oath. They find out through an attendance check somehow that 
this city was not in attendance. Jabesh Gilead, for whatever reason, it doesn't tell us why. We can only speculate why they were not there. Did they hear the message? We don't know. But for whatever reason, they didn't come to assemble with Israel for this civil war against Benjamin. And so the elders decide this first part of their solution is that they're going to enact another civil war against Jabesh Gilead, second civil war. And in order to make this, in order to legitimize this other war, they're going to declare what is called harem, this complete devotion to destruction. If you look at the end of verse 11, this is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a man, you shall devote to destruction. Previously, it mentioned that it was even the little ones. They're devoting to destruction. This divine mandate that was supposed to be for the Canaanites, they are waging holy war using the rules that God had given them for holy war, but they're using it against their own brother, another brother. In order to fix the problem that they had with the Benjaminites, they're going to do it again to somebody else. Except they are selective with their application of the rules. Devoting to destruction means you kill all the men, all the women, all the children, all the animals. You light the city on fire. And yet they're very selective because they need some wives for Benjamin. And so they do a devotion to destruction except conveniently all of the virgins that are in the city. They're selective. They maintain a facade of this being a legal war, this devotion to destruction, this harem, this holy war, and yet it is a clear violation what they're doing. They are exploiting one oath in order to circumvent the other oath. The oath that they made that they would not give Benjamin, their daughters, they're exploiting the harem and being selective with it in order to fulfill this other oath. It is clearly a violation. If you look at verse number 12, there is a phrase that is debated among scholars. At the very end, it says, And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. This phrase, which is in the land of Canaan, has caused much debate. Why would the author of Judges call the promised land, particularly Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, this is the center for their worship in the promised land. This is where, this is the center of worship of Yahweh. Why would the author here call Shiloh, this central place for worship, the land of Canaan? Daniel Block has a commentary. If, if you're interested in a commentary for the book of Judges, his commentary is the one that I probably relied on the most. I've enjoyed it the most when studying through um, this book. I'd like to read you just a portion of what he says about this phrase, in the land of Canaan. Since the, in, since the occupants of the land, the Israelites, entered under Joshua were Canaanites, so whenever they came under Joshua, they entered the land, those were Canaanites. Biblical writers naturally referred to the promised land as the land of Canaan, especially in narratives dealing with the pre-conquest and conquest periods. So 
So before they conquered the land and while they were conquering the land, it was normal for the biblical writers to use this phrase, the land of Canaan. However, this is the only place in the entire Old Testament where the designation land of Canaan applies to the post-conquest period. Why would the author here call Shiloh, the central place for worship, the land of Canaan? Well, I think it's obvious in these last few chapters, the author of Judges has been gradually showing us that Israel has become Sodom. A family is compromised, which then leads to a tribe being compromised, which leads to the entire Levitical priesthood is compromised. And now the entire nation is Canaanized. Israel is Canaan. Israel is acting just like Sodom. This is the central point of these last few chapters. This is Canaan land still. Even if Shiloh is there, even if the tabernacle is there, this is Canaan land. So Israel provides these virgins for their brothers Benjamin that they captured from this city. And yet we have a dilemma because they were only able to muster 400 of them. And if you remember, there are 600 Benjaminites left. And so we're 200 short. So that brings us to the second solution to the crisis. They have to come up with a second solution. Look at verse 16. The second solution to this crisis. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for the wives, for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Verses 15 through 18 repeat this crisis, this problem that they have. It's repeated again. Benjamin is not going to have enough wives to continue. They're going to be blotted out. And yet we have promised that we're not going to give them any wives. So... We attacked this city who was absent during the battle. We stole all of their daughters, but they only had 400. We have to come up with 200 more. And so along the, the same lines, along the, they were thinking along the same lines, and they thought, who else could possibly fit 
under this loophole that we found. Who else could apply? Well, they're thinking amongst themselves, these elders of Israel, and they say, well, soon there's going to be this celebration at Shiloh. And we don't have any other, anything else in the Bible that even tells us what this could have been, this dance at Shiloh or this celebration at Shiloh. Some have speculated because of this designation of daughters of Shiloh instead of daughters of Israel, which would have been a typical title, that this daughters of Shiloh could have been a title given to pagan-like priest dancers, priestess dancers that would have had a sensual nature. It's not hard to rationalize that this center for worship being at Shiloh and it's not, un, it's not hard to suggest that Israel's paganization has went to the point that they are now adopting cultic female dance rituals just like their neighbors were. It's a possibility. We don't know. Speculation. However, for some reason, there are many daughters in Israel that are going to all be dancing together at the site central site of worship in Israel, in Shiloh. And this is a yearly thing, and it's going to be happening soon. So the men of the elders of Israel go to Benjamin, and they say, you're going to lay in wait, lie in wait, and you're going to ambush the women whenever they begin to dance. You're going to take them for yourself. And if their fathers or their brothers dare to come have a problem with it, we will just tell them, don't worry. At least we didn't go into battle like we did with the other city and just kill you and your wife and your children and take them from you. And you don't have to worry because you are not violating the oath that you made. Because you didn't give your daughters to Benjamin. They took them. So everything's fine, right? It's all good. Go back to your homes. Everything's fine. They were taken from you. You're not in violation of your oath. You didn't give your daughters this tribe of Benjamin is the same tribe that was nearly wiped out for defending the Sodom-like torture and rape of a woman in the previous two chapters. It has become clear that Israel views her daughters just like the pagans do. When the disgusting men of Sodom ask for men, they offer their daughters. That's the men of Sodom. But then when Benjamin comes and does the same exact thing, Benjamin, the men of Gibeah come and they come knocking on the door, asking for the men. The men in the home offer their daughters, just like the pagans, just like Sodom. Women have, without a doubt, been in an oppressed group throughout history. And in, a, in an attempt to answer the difficulty of this problem of oppression of women. There has been a rise in a movement that we could call broadly feminism. All around the world, especially in America, but all around the world. And they say that to fix this problem of female oppression, we must squash the patriarchy. We have to get rid of male rule because this is what causes female oppression. However, the problem is that 
patriarchy is inevitable. Patriarchy is inevitable because it is woven into the very fabric of who we are as men and women. The question is not whether or not men will rule. If you survey history, if you know anything about any period of history, you know that men are going to rule. So the question is not should men rule or will men rule, but which men are going to be ruling. Feminists should not be trying to smash the patriarchy. Instead, they should be trying to build up godly patriarchy. Women are most unsafe with cowardly, godless, pagan men leading them. That is when they are most unsafe. Women are safest under the leadership of godly, Christ-fearing men who will lead them, who will serve them, provide them for them, pray for them, water them with the word. And yes, protect and die for them if need be. Feminists didn't exist on the Titanic. You ever notice that? Whenever the question always comes in difficulty and tragedy of who will survive, men, women, and children, men are always the ones, should be always the ones that will volunteer to go to the front of that difficulty. In times of war, feminists don't really exist either. They're only able to thrive in times of great success, comfort, and peace like we live in today. But make no mistake, young men, young women, make no mistake that a time may come when the sons of Sodom come knocking on our doors and you will want strong men, strong patriarchs that will fight and defend and protect and lay down their lives for their family and their homes. This is what the men of Israel should have been. Strong, defending their daughters from this wickedness, slaying the men of Gibeah. And yet they were offering their daughters to this wickedness. Finally, we find the epilogue to this chapter, the epilogue of the entire book. It says in the last verse, verse number 25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This last verse should be interpreted or viewed as the author's commentary on this entire chapter, or we could say maybe the entire book. This is his commentary. None of this has happened. None of this that has happened is good in the sight of the Lord. None of it is. This is the story which the entire book has been leading up to. And it leads us to an apostate Israel who has no king. They don't have a human king and they have no divine king. He is silent and they are not serving him. One commentary has said that this is wickedness democratized. Wickedness democratized. Mob rule. And when, mob, when an evil mob rules, the outcome is evil. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. This chapter illustrates the depths of human depravity and how dangerous pagan patriarchy is. The women of Jabesh Gilead, this first city, their first solution 
this city that was absent from the war, these women of Jabesh-Gilead are taken from their towns. And everyone that they ever knew was killed. Their husbands, or not their husbands, because they were the virgin daughters, but their fathers, their mothers, their other siblings. Everything that they knew and everyone that they loved, their neighbors were all destroyed except them. And they were given as slaves to be wives to this ungodly tribe, these men, these Benjaminites. They're forced to live and be the wives of the cursed men. Then, because there were only 400 of them, they need 200 more. The daughters of Shiloh are dancing in celebration and they're abducted and stripped from their families and also given to the cursed Benjaminites. And so, look at the absurdity of the series of events. Because one woman is brutally raped. Now 600. This is Israel's answer to this crisis. The answer how we're going to fix it is we're going to now give 600 to those same men so that they can be too. This is how, this is the world that we live in whenever every man does what is right in their own eyes. Absolute chaos. In biblical Christianity, the leader is called to sacrifice for those under his care. This is clearly the form of patriarchy that we see in the Bible. But in Judges, the women and children are sacrificed for the men. In worldly cultures like this, the criminals become the victims. And the victims are seldom thought of. You notice how they're treating Benjamin? They're worried about the outcome of Benjamin. He just, Benjamin just defended these vile men of Gibeah and would not give them over. They would rather war against him. And now somehow they're like the victims in this scenario. They're the criminals. They're not the victims. All across our nation for the, fa- the last few weeks, we have had to stomach those who would defend a psychopath who would shoot up and murder six Christians, three of them being young children. And the reason of outrage for news stations all across this nation is the horrific atrocity of misgendering someone. A psychopath murderer was misgendered. And this is the horrible thing where a criminal is now a victim. Can you even fathom the level of backwards thinking that you have to come to to be able to think that, that, that you would be offended that this murderer would be misgendered, this woman that was born as a woman, the, lab- the police that had to kill her would call her a woman because they're looking at a woman lying on the ground. And that, that would offend you to the point where the actual victims are overshadowed and not thought of because this is what we're arguing about. Doesn't the modern world model this concept of Sympathy for the criminal, which overshadows compassion for the victim. It feels like compassion that Israel is caring for their brother, the Benjaminites. They were nearly wiped out. And yet they were enabling the victimization of their own daughters. This is what the elders of Israel came up with. This is their grand solution. We're going to give 600 of our daughters to these vile and perverse men. Judges teaches us what is so often true about us. And that is that 
God's people are often their own worst enemy. The very the culmination of this book, you would think at the beginning of the book, maybe if you're reading Joshua leading into Judges, you'd, you would think that surely the end of Judges, the greatest enemy is going to be the Philistines, going to be the Amalekites. The greatest enemy of Israel is Israel. Is there any other book than Judges that more brilliantly shows us the state of the church today? It's almost like a mirror that we see ourselves in it. Human heroes are hard to find. May this book be a wake-up call for us. From the jealousy of the Ephraimites that were thin-skinned and easily offended. Do you remember their brothers went off into battle? They didn't answer the call and they were offended Whenever they were cowardly and unwilling to fight for year after year after year, and yet they're offended that somebody else defeated the enemy because they were thin-skinned and easily offended. The lack of men like Barak, who would take a stand which required Deborah, the woman, to lead the nation in war. To the completely self-focused Samson that was led by his lust and not his faith. The pagan syncretism of Gideon mixing the godly with the profane. To the failed patriarchy that leads to the violence against women and children and their own daughters. Perhaps the reason that Judges is so gruesome and difficult to deal with and to read is because it shows us so much of ourself. It shows us so much of what we see in the world around us. It shows us so much of the state of the church even still today. However, the, the book of Judges also teaches us that God's work will be accomplished. It doesn't end with the Lord completely wiping out his people, as many of us might think he should have. It doesn't end like that. In spite of the sinfulness of the world, in spite of the faithlessness of his own people, God's covenant people will persevere. Because God's covenant with them is eternal. His covenant with his people is eternal. And God does not make promises that he does not keep. His kingdom has come and it is coming. May the Lord and the king of his church continue to build his church. And we have a promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Just like they didn't back then. No matter how dark and grim it gets, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that Christ is building. May he continue to give us grace to this undeserving people. Amen. Let's pray.